It's June 1676. For the past few months, as King Philip's war built to a crescendo of savage violence, Benjamin Church had been on the sidelines. Sorely wounded in the great swamp fight, he had needed some time to heal. He was also aggrieved that the Plymouth Colony authorities had rejected his February 1676 plan to raise a company of Indians to go after Metacomet and his allies. Church, never short on self-belief, thought he had a better way to fight the war, and he wanted to do it on his own hook and on his own terms. Church's wounds were real enough, but there is an element of Achilles sulking in his tent about his reluctance to get back into the field. But by June, many things had changed. The Nipmuc, worn out and suffering high casualties, even in victory, were suing for peace, and the Poconocat Wampanoag Sachem, Metacomet, called by the English King Philip, feared that he would become a bargaining chip in negotiations. So he fled from Nipmuc country in central Massachusetts, back south into his swampy Mount Hope homeland, burning and killing along the way. The English had learned from hard knocks that Indian scouts and warriors could tip the balance of battle, and colonial authorities were suddenly much more open to the idea of fielding an Indian force. The conditions were right for Benjamin Church to get back into the fight. Church was an unconventional man in Puritan New England. The son of a carpenter, he had always lived on the margins of English settlement, close to or among the native peoples. He had early on struck up a solid friendship with a Sakonoket Wampanoag squaw sachem, Awashonks, and had tried to persuade her to keep her people clear of Metacomet and his militants at the beginning of the war. He wasn't successful. The Sakonets were swept up in their Poconucket kin's warfare, but now they too were back in Rhode Island and Church thought ready to be turned against Philip. In a bold and extremely risky gambit, Church, guided by a pair of Indians from Cape Cod, paddled a small boat to the shore of an island where Awashonks and her Sakonet had taken refuge. After a pretty fraught and dangerous, tense parley, the Sachem and her chief warrior, Nomposh, agreed not only that they wanted peace with the English, but that the Sakonet warriors would take the field under Church's command. Nomposh told the ranger, Sir, if you please to accept of me and my men, and will head us, we'll fight for you, and will help you to Philip's head before the Indian corn be ripe. The action of Awashanks and Nomposh seems to us, from our vantage point maybe, to be an act of treachery against their fellow Wampanoag. But Church understood and manipulated the psychology behind it. Metacomet was never an especially popular leader, and he had more or less forced the Sakonet to join his Poconocet in war against the English, war that had brought them only suffering and loss. Church correctly assessed their willingness to help him go after the author of all their troubles and end the war. Think of it as the Sakonocet awakening, much like the Sunni elders who turned on militants in Iraq in the Sunni awakening in the mid-2000s. With a small force of Indians leavened by a handful of, of English militiamen who were willing and able 
to learn a different mode of fighting, Church took the field. As Richard Slotkin observes in his essay, Benjamin Church, King of the Wild Frontier, His openness to human relationships with Indians made Church capable of learning from them. It was this quality that made him successful in partisan warfare. Unlike the regular soldiery, Church learned from Indians how to fight Indians, and since he also knew how to recognize and evoke the humanity of the Indians, he was able to bring personal influence to bear in diplomacy and in recruiting Indians to fight against King Philip. The Sacanet Wampanoag provided Church and his company with an effective tactical doctrine. According to the Sacanets, the English always kept in a heap together. As a result, it was easy to hit a company of English soldiers as to hit a house. The Sacanets urged Church to keep his men, as he described it, thinly scattered advancing through the forest in, in open order, and the English had a tendency to talk to each other a lot, and the Sacanets urged them to be quiet and also to, uh, to avoid leather shoes that creaked and, and thick, heavy pants that would make a swishing sound going through the brush. But it was more diplomacy than tactics that was the key to Church's success. His success really came down largely to his ability to turn disaffected allies of Metacomet against him, often right on the battlefield. This tactic began with one of Church's first operations in his campaign to capture or kill Metacomet in July of 1676. And Nathaniel Philbrook describes the action. After a few hours' sleep in Middleborough, Church and his men set out after the enemy. Soon, one of his Indian scouts reported having found an encampment. Based on the Sacanet's description of, in Church's words, their fires and postures, he directed his men to surround the camp, and on his cue, they rushed at the enemy, surprising them from every side so unexpectedly that they were all taken, not so much as one escaped. Church took an immediate liking to one of the captured Indians, named Jeffrey, who freely told him of the whereabouts of a large number of Indians near Monposset Pond, where Philip's brother Alexander had been seized back in 1662. Church decided to make Geoffrey a part of their company, promising that if he continued to be faithful to him, he should not be sold out of the country, but should become his waiting man. As it turned out, Geoffrey remained a part of Church's household for the rest of the Indian's life. After delivering his prisoners to Plymouth, Church and his men were on their way to Monposset, where they captured several dozen additional Indians. Over the course of the next few weeks, Church's string of successes continued unabated, and he soon became the talk of the colony. On July 24th, Winslow, that's Governor Winslow, broadened Church's powers to allow him to do as he had done with Jeffrey, grant mercy to those Indians who agreed to help him find more of the enemy. Church's recruits were soon convincing other newly captured Indians to do as they had done and come over to what he described as the better side of the hedge. Church described his pitch in his memoir. It was, 
to clap them on the back and tell them, Come, come, you look wild and surly and mutter, but that signifies nothing. These, my best soldiers, were a little while ago as you are now. But by that time, you have been but one day with me. You'll love me too, and be as brisk as any of them. You'll note the personal nature of that appeal. Church was exerting a very personal form of leadership, which appealed to the warriors. He wasn't asking them to fight for the English. He was asking them to fight for him. And they did. It was a hard slog in very challenging terrain, a hunt for a high-value target that any modern-day special operations warrior would recognize. Field interrogation of captives provided intelligence that closed the net on Metacomet and his followers. Conventional forces continued to conduct patrols that kept Metacomet hemmed into the swamps that were increasingly penetrated by Church's rangers. Continual losses wore on Metacomet psychologically, and so did the, the looming prospect of betrayal by one of his worn-out and increasingly disillusioned followers. Metacomet cut his hair short, which saved him from being identified in a couple of close encounters. In one action, one of Church's Sacanets spotted a man sitting on a stump in the forest, and it took him kind of a long moment to realize that it was Metacomet, and by the time he raised his musket for a shot, the fugitive Sachem had thrown himself off the swamp and was running into the forest. Running into the forest and swamp was Metacomet's almost instinctive reaction at this point to any contact with the enemy. He, he wasn't trying to fight. He was just trying to stay alive and free. And the only way to stay alive was to stay free. Metacomet knew that the English would execute him when they captured him. He must have known by this time that his fellow war leaders, Kanachet, uh, Matomp, and Matunas, had all been shot by English or Indian firing squads and their heads cut off and mounted on poles. All he could do to avoid their fate was to stay on the run and hope to live another day. The end came in August of 1676. Metacomet and a few of his hardcore followers, captains like Totosin and Anawan, were still on the run, moving constantly through the Rhode Island swamplands. Church, operating mostly off of intelligence from captives, continued this wearying, grinding pursuit. At the beginning of the month, Church came very close to capturing the prize. His force was patrolling into the swamplands and encountered a number of exhausted Poconocets and took them prisoner. He didn't have enough force to guard them and go after Metacomet, so he told the prisoners just to stay put, or when the fighting was finished, he would hunt them all down and kill them. And they believed him. Church and his company approached Metacomet's camp as daylight began to creep over the land. We'll let him take up the tale, and bear in mind that his account was dictated to his son years later and is in the third person. By this time, it began to be so light as the time that he usually chose to make his onset. He moved, sending two soldiers before him to try if they could privately discover the enemy's postures. 
but very unhappily it fell out that the very same time Philip had sent two of his as a scout upon his own track to see if none dogged them, who spied the two Indian men and turned short about and fled with all speed to their camp, and Captain Church pursued as fast as he could. The two Indians set it yelling and howling and made the most hideous noise they could invent, soon gave the alarm to Philip and his camp, who all fled at the first tidings, left their kettles boiling and meat roasting upon their wooden spits and run into the swamp with no breakfast, then what Captain Church afterwards treated them with. Captain Church, pursuing, sent Mr. Isaac Howland with a party on one side of the swamp, while himself with the rest ran on the other side, agreeing to run on each side until they met on the further end, placing some men in secure stands at the end of the swamp where Philip entered, concluding that if they headed him and beat him back, that he would take back in his own track. Captain Church and Mr. Howland soon met at the far end of the swamp, it not being a great one, when they met with a great number of the enemy, well armed, coming out of the swamp. But on sight of the English they seemed very much surprised and tracked short. Captain Church called hastily to them and said, If they fired one gun, they were all dead men, for he would have them know that he had them hemmed in with a force sufficient to command them. But if they peaceably surrendered, they should have good quarter, etc., they, seeing both Indians and English come so thick upon them, were so surprised that many of them stood still and let the English come and take the guns out of their hands when they were both charged and cocked. Many, both men, women, and children of the enemy, were imprisoned at this time. While Philip, Tispequin, and Totatson concluded that the English would pursue them upon their tracks, so were waylaying their tracks at the first end of the swamp, hoping thereby to gain a shot upon Captain Church who was now better employed in taking his prisoners and running them into a valley in form something shaped like a punch bowl, and appointing a guard of two files tribal, armed with guns taken from the enemy. But Philip, having waited all this while in vain, now moves on after the rest of his company to see what has become of them, and by this time Captain Church was got into the swamp ready to meet him, and as it happened made the first discovery, clapped behind a tree until Philip's company came pretty near, and then fired upon them, killed many of them, and a close skirmish followed. Upon this, Philip, having ground sufficient to suspect the event of his company that went before him, fled back upon his own track, and coming to the place where the ambush lay, they fired on each other, and one Lucas of Plymouth, not being so careful as he might have been about his stand, was killed by the Indians. In this swamp skirmish, Captain Church, with his two men, which always ran by his side as his guard, met with three of the enemy, two of which surrendered themselves, and the captain's guard seized them, but the other being a great stout surly fellow, with his two locks tied up with red and a great rattlesnake skin hanging to the back part of his head, whom Captain Church concluded to be Totatson, ran from them into the swamp. Captain Church in person pursued him close, till coming pretty near up with him, presented his gun between his shoulders, but in missing fire, the Indian perceiving it, turned and presented it Captain Church, and missing fire also, their guns taking what with the fog and the dew of the morning. But the Indian, turning short for another run, his foot tripped in a small grapevine, and he fell flat on his face. Captain Church was by this time up with him, and struck the muzzle of his gun an inch and a half into the back part of his head, which dispatched him without another blow. But Captain Church, looking behind him, saw Tatosan, the Indian whom he thought he had killed, come flying at him like a dragon. But this happened to be fair in sight of the guard 
that were set to keep the prisoners, who, spying Tatasan and the others, were following of him, in the very seasonable juncture, made a shot upon them, and rescued their captain, though he was in no small danger from his friend's bullets, for some of them came so near him that he thought that he felt the wind of them. The skirmish being over, they gathered their prisoners together, and found the number that they had killed and taken was 173, the prisoners which they had taken overnight included, who, after the skirmish, came to them as they were ordered. So this operation was a success, really kind of a masterpiece of bluff, and some rough-and-tumble close-quarters fighting. But Metacomet had escaped yet again. Church continued the pursuit, continued to capture the wounded, the worn-out, and the despairing amongst the Wampanoag. He recounts the field execution of one prisoner who was considered to be an outlaw by the English. Sam Barrow, as noted a rogue as any among the enemy, fell into the hands of the English at this time. Captain Church told him that because of his inhumane murders and barbarities, the court had allowed him no quarter, but was to be forthwith put to death, and therefore he was to prepare for it. Barrow replied that the sentence of death against him was just, and that indeed he was ashamed to live any longer, and he desired no more favor than to smoke a whiff of tobacco before his execution. When he had taken a few whiffs, he said he was ready, upon which one of Captain Church's Indians sunk his hatchet into his brains. This was rough stuff, and Church was by this time, by his own estimation, weary and worn. So he took a day to visit his wife, Alice, who was certain that her husband was going to be killed chasing Indians through the forest and swamps. She was so overcome at seeing him alive and whole that she fainted dead away as he approached their house. But the captain had virtually no time to spend reassuring Alice. One of his rangers rode up and informed him that they had in hand a defector who could lead them directly to Metacomet. So Church was immediately back in the saddle himself and headed back to the war. This defector was the brother of a man who had made the fatal mistake of urging Metacomet to surrender. The sachem smote him on the head with a war club and killed him, and now his brother wanted revenge. And Benjamin Church and his rangers could be his instrument. Frontier warfare was always very personal. The Poconocat defender led Church and his small force of around 30 men to a spot near Mount Hope, where Metacomet was now encamped, and this time there wasn't going to be an escape. Church threw a cordon around Metacomet's camp with a force under Captain Roger Golding assigned to push into the camp and flush the quarry. At the first fire, Metacomet, true to form, threw his powder horn and shot pouch over his shoulder grabbed up his musket, and took to his heels. And behind him, a very old but badass war captain named Anawan shouted, Fight! Fight! Metacomet sprinted into the swamp and directly under the guns of a ranger named Caleb Cook and a Pocasset Wampanoag warrior who went by the English name of John Alderman. Cook's musket misfired. 
Alderman's double-shotted flintlock went off, one of the balls striking Metacomet high on the chest and the second drilling him straight through the heart. The Wampanoag sachem pitched face down into a pool of water, his musket trapped beneath him. Church ran to the scene, and he saw lying there a man he described as a doleful, great, naked, dirty beast. He assembled his men and ordered them to pull Metacomet from the water, and the ranger captain then pronounced the traditional English sentence for rebels and traitors upon the corpse of King Philip. He was to be beheaded and drawn and quartered. That forasmuch as he had caused many an Englishman's body to lie unburied and rot above ground, that not one of his bones should be buried. One of, Sac- of Church's saconets, with the grim humor that often characterized frontier warriors, took up a hatchet to do the dirty work. And he said that he figured that Philip had once been a big man who made many people afraid of him, but now he would chop his ass for him. He also took off Metacomet's head, which would be sent back to Plymouth, where it would be displayed on a stake for years to come. Alderman got one of Philip's hands, which he pickled in a jar of rum, and would later display for a price, and he was said to have made many a penny from his trophy. So Church's high-value target was KIA, but he had one more mission. He wanted Anawan, who had made his escape as Metacomet went down. Church had two reasons to go after this old warrior who had served uh, all the way back to Philip's father, Massasoit. He figured that Anawan was the last remaining threat amongst the the Wampanoag, and capturing him would really end the war. And he wanted to turn this old warrior and take him off with him to Maine, where settlers were battling the Abenaki in a uh, related but separate conflict. And he figured that a fighter like Anawan would be a real asset in the forest down east. So the ranger went back into the field on the Mount Hope Peninsula with a small party of Indians and an English ranger or two. Church's force captured several Wampanoag, including an old man and a young woman, who agreed to guide Church to Anawan's camp in a swamp about six miles west of the town of Taunton. Church found Anawan's camp laid out just as his guide said it would be, positioned up against a rocky outcrop in the forest. The only approach to the camp that would retain the element of surprise was down the face of that outcrop. So Church and a couple of his men climbed the reverse slope to the top where they could see fires from other campsites flickering in in the gathering dark. A woman was pounding corn in a mortar to make an evening meal, meat roasted over fires, and the warriors' muskets were stacked on an improvised gun rack leaning up against a horizontal branch and covered with a mat to keep the evening dew out of the gunpowder. Douglas Leach describes Church's next move in Flintlock and Tomahawk. Ascertaining that the steep cliff was the only feasible approach to Anawan's position, 
Church decided upon a course of action which, for sheer daring, must stand as one of the great individual exploits of the war. He knew that if his two prisoners were seen descending the cliff, no suspicion would be aroused, for they belonged to Anawan's party. Therefore he had them start down first, while he and his men followed close behind, hidden by the first two. Whenever the squaw with a mortar stopped her pounding, Church's men paused in their descent. When she resumed, they continued downward, clinging to bushes and whatever handholds they could find in the face of the rock. The surprise was complete. Anawan and his immediate party, startled out of their repose, saw that resistance was useless, for Church's first care had been to secure their weapons. Messengers were sent out to the other campfires with word of what had happened, and the Indians there readily agreed to submit. Church, on the authority of his commission, promised good treatment to all the prisoners except Anawan. To the latter, he could not make such a promise, for Anawan had been a great leader in the war against the English. Anawan seems to have accepted that he had been bested with exceptional good grace. He and Church ate salted meat together and swapped war stories. In the night, Anawan got up and moved into the forest. Church was wary of this move, but the old warrior came back to him bearing elaborate wampum belts, a red blanket, and a couple of horns of powder. He approached the ranger and he fell upon his knees before him and offered him what he had brought, and speaking in plain English said, Great Captain, you have killed Philip and conquered his country, for I believe that I and my company are the last that war against the English. So suppose the war is ended by your means, and therefore these things belong unto you. Church marched his prisoners out of the wilderness and into the town of Taunton, where his rangers received the accolades of the town folk. As Leach notes, Church seems to have taken a real liking to his most distinguished prisoner, and apparently hoped that his life would be spared by the authorities. However, despite Church's personal wish, Anawan was subsequently executed at Plymouth. The greatness of the Wampanoags died with him. There were still a few holdouts to round up in the forest and swamp, and a related, as I said, but separate conflict raged on in Maine, but for all intents and purposes, what would become known later as King Philip's War was over. Church's actions didn't win the war, but he finished it. Benjamin Church kind of goes in and out of style, um, depending on the, the tenor of the times that are, are looking back on his, his legacy. For many years, he was regarded as the the winner of uh, King Philip's War, and and I make the distinction between winning the war and finishing it for a reason. King Philip's War was won by the English, essentially because they outlasted the Wampanoag and their allies, the Nipmuc and the Narragansetts, and really the decisive blow that was delivered to the Native People's Alliance was when the Mohawks attacked Philip and, and killed so many of his people and drove them back into, into Massachusetts. Um, it, it made it impossible for Metacomet to expand his alliance, and, uh, and it really demoralized his people. 
So it wasn't Church that, that won the war, but he did finish it. And uh, his work, as I noted earlier, was very similar to modern special operations forces going after high-value targets. It was important to capture or kill Metacomet um, for the English to be able to, to put an end to the war. And, uh, and he did do that. And more importantly, he captured Anawan, who was actually a bigger, a bigger threat. Those were legitimate accomplishments. Uh, Church's narrative, which was written something like 40 years after the event and, and after he served in uh, both King William's War and Queen Anne's War, does kind of make him the star of the show, and that's off-putting to, to some contemporary historians. Uh, it kind of reminds me of the, the snarky comment that someone made about uh, Theodore Roosevelt's book, The Rough Riders. They said that it should be titled Alone in Cuba. Uh, Church definitely put himself at the center of the action, and the, the important actions of King Philip's War were the ones that he was part of. Um, all of that's true. And, uh, and for those who are, are put off by his uh, clear ego investment in in his own service. I get that. But the fact remains that he did innovate tactically and, uh, more importantly, diplomatically, that his relations with Indians, his personal relations with Indians, made him a very effective combatant who did wrap up the combat in King Philip's War in 1676. Some folks have have regarded him as something of a hypocrite because, well, for a couple of reasons. One, that uh, he regarded the mutilation that that the Native people sometimes engaged in as evidence of their barbarity, but then he had King Philip's body mutilated and his head put on a pike under English law and uh, never really seemed to see the double standard that he was applying there. But uh, that kind of double standard is pretty common in war and amongst uh, amongst warriors. If, uh, if their side does it, it's bad. If our side does it, it's justified. Uh, more significantly, perhaps... Um, Churches has of late been called out on um, his uh, dismay over selling Indians into slavery, and uh, while he was in fact maintaining Indian and and uh, and also African slaves of his own, and uh, that does uh, appear on the service to be hip- hypocritical. And of course, uh, in in the current times. We look with abhorrence on any form of slavery. It kind of misses the point of of what Church was on about in regards to the enslaving of Indians. It was a purely pragmatic military consideration for him. His modus operandi was to attempt to turn the surrendered Indians or captured Indians against their their comrades, their former comrades. And he was very successful in this. And, and for him, um, enslaving them eliminated the possibility of doing that and was therefore foolish. And 
in his pragmatism, Church is a very uh, sort of archetypal frontier figure. Uh, what worked was what worked, and what worked was good, and what did not work was bad. He was not opposed to slavery on principle. He was opposed to slavery when it interfered with military operations. It's very much like his um, dismay and disgust when the United Colonies force burned the Narragansett Fort in the Great Swamp Fight. It wasn't that he thought that that was a cruel and, and terrible and unethical thing to do. He thought it was foolish because the United Colonies force needed shelter and and he was right. The march back to the settlements killed many of the wounded people that, that could have survived if they'd been able to shelter at that fort. And he also believed that possession of that fort could have forced the Narragansett to surrender instead of just dispersing them out into the swamps and where they uh, they became active enemies. At any rate, it's all about uh, pragmatism, what was militarily effective. And uh, any analysis that's that's fair has to to reckon that that Church was usually right about these things, and uh, and I give him him credit for that. Um, I don't think it's it's reasonable to expect a 21st century moral sensitivity about the issue of slavery out of a 17th century man. That was just it was just such a common practice then that that. Uh, that very few people at that time were morally opposed to it. Um, so he wasn't a hypocrite. He was simply a pragmatist. Another uh, sort of disparagement of, of church has revolved around his status as America's first ranger. Of course, he never called himself that, um, but th- there are some some recent historians that have called into question um, that status, the appropriateness of that status, basically arguing that there was no institutional memory that passed uh, that passed his uh, techniques and tactics down through generations. I think that's disputable, and I'll get to that in in a moment. Um, this sort of criticism is also part of a of a sort of military history debate as to whether what we would think of as special operations or the ranging way of war was as important as um, it's been made out to be and perhaps mythologized, what I would refer to as frontier partisan warfare. There are some historians who argue that, that really... Um, it was conventional military power that won all of the the wars, including the wars on the frontier, and there is something to that argument. Um, it, it's it's really not a one one thing or another um, thing to me. I think that that the way the end game of King Philip's war played out is a pretty good illustration of of how that operated. It was absolutely the presence of of large militia forces, conventional, what we could think of as conventional forces that were actively patrolling, that really hemmed Metacomet into a swampy forested area that was 
his former home and, and a place where, where he was comfortable, but uh, it hemmed him in there in a, in a way that allowed forces like Church's Rangers to go in after them and, uh, and root them out. And I don't really understand what, uh, what the argument is there. Both uh, elements were, were critical to uh, wrapping up the war. And if you play that out through the rest of, of frontier partisan history, I, I think you see similar things. It's, it's not either conventional or irregular warfare that wins. It's, it's the ability to combine the, the two things. Um, to go back to the, the question of, of lineage, I think that that's pushed to a, a slightly absurd uh, degree because, you know, of course there wasn't a, a ranger school in the 17th and early 18th century. That's not how, how things worked. Um, there wasn't any kind of institutional training for, for anybody really. Um, it was uh, all ad hoc. I mean, even militia companies were, were trained by, by men who had previous military experience, but there was nothing really institutional about it. And I think, it's very clear that churches tactics and techniques developed in the end game of King Philip's war were passed down in New England's heritage and New England developed a very strong ranging tradition and John Grenier in his book The First Way of War American War Making on the Frontier really lines this out pretty effectively. Now, bear in mind that Church did continue a military career that, uh, that lasted up until the early 18th century. So that's part of the context of this. By the middle of the 1740s, most New England Rangers served in units under officers who had a direct connection to Church. In King Philip's War, for instance, one of Church's subaltern officers was John Gorham I of Barnstable, now Yarmouth, Massachusetts. Gorham died of wounds he received at the Great Swamp Fight, but his son, John Gorham II, served with the Ranger Company that Church formed in 1676. Twenty years later, in 1696, Gorham II was second in command of the Rangers on the Fourth Eastward Expedition. That's fighting in Maine. During King George's War, his grandson John became a commander of Gorham's Rangers. Joseph Gorham, one of John II's other grandsons, commanded Gorham's Rangers and saw combat as a ranger in Nova Scotia, outside Quebec, in Cuba, and through the War of Independence. The military lineage of the Gorham clan suggests an intriguing point about the importance of ranging to the first way of war and early American history. The careers of John Gorham, his son, and grandsons suggest that ranging was a way of life for successive generations of New Englanders, among whom a corporate knowledge of ranger warfare passed down from generation to generation. John Gorham of King George's War was not born a ranger, but there certainly was something in his family's remembered past that led him to ranging. Who better than Gorham, whose great-grandfather and grandfather both had served with Benjamin Church, to lead the New England Rangers of King George's War. Indeed, when the call for Rangers went out in 1744, Gorham was one of the first to answer. 
Undoubtedly, tales of campaigns past must have furnished a store of practical lessons passed down to the younger Gorhams and applied time after time in New England's wars. I think that's on point. I think it's right in the X-ring. And I think it really makes the case that Benjamin Church fully deserves his title as America's First Ranger. So Benjamin Church ended King Philip's War, and that brings us close to the end of our podcast series on King Philip's War. But not quite all the way to the end. I would like to, uh, to wrap things up with a, a brief episode to assess both the way the war played out and its long-term impact, not just in New England, but uh, across American history. So uh, we'll do that uh, next time. I would like to thank the patrons who keep this campfire burning. That's Bridger Larson, Larry Richardson, Bob Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfager. Anyone who's listening who uh, would like to support the, the podcast, uh, a link to the Patreon page will be in the show notes. And uh, we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>